I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode comes with a content warning and brushes up against topics that could be triggering for our audience. You'll find specific details in the show notes. Please take care when listening. to another episode of WA Expose, a podcast about local arts by local artists. As always, I'm your host, Aria Scarlett, with the immense privilege of recording this podcast on Wajak Noongar Budja. Today's guest has been an active participant in the local music scene for over 10 years. This icon of musicians works as a music teacher, songwriter, producer, broadcaster, record label manager, and speaker. She's been an uplifting voice for up-and-coming musicians as the coordinator of Girls Rock Western Australia, channeling her energy and experience into developing programs and opportunities for emerging artists and audiences from across WA. Of course, I can't say all of this without mentioning that this is M Burrows. <laughs> That's Hi, such Anne. a lovely intro. Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. I'm, <laughs> honestly, like I keep saying, I just steal it from people's Instagram bios and then just like wow. add fluff. Yeah, nice. nice. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So of course, the only question we have to kickstart today is why music? Yeah, I mean, oh gosh, it's a, it's a really difficult question and it comes down to because it, I think music is is a compulsion, you know, for, for a lot of us who make it, it's not, you know, it, it, to a certain extent, it's not a choice. It's something that you, you feel compelled to do. Um, I Music resonated with me from a very young age, you know, both of my parents tell stories of me. Uh, moving kind of intuitively to music and, and in time, you know, this really shocked them, you know, when I was a baby that I would be <laughs> moving kind rhythm. of in time. Yeah, that's right. And um, so it was very clear that it kind of resonated with me. It, it certainly wasn't an obvious career path um, and I can talk a little bit more about why that that was the case. But um, but I think, you know, it's because I wake up in the morning and I can't not do music mm. and, you know, when I have those days, which we all do where I kind of go, you know, oh, this is hard, this is, you know, yeah. you, know you, you know, I always think of this thing that a friend said to me, you know, I was like, how do you, you know, when it gets hard, you know, how do you know when, when to stop? And he goes, you just keep going until you just, <laughs> you, you can't be fucked. And I was like, and, and it's so, it sounds ridiculous and it sounds trivial, but it's just absolutely true. If, if you just, if you just don't feel it and you can't be bothered, then you stop. But until that point, you just keep going. And I think, you know, for me, it's 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 the creative process, it's the problem solving, it's the community, you know, it's the expression, it's all of that stuff that music gives me. I can't see myself not wanting that, you know, or needing that, not feeling compelled to have that avenue in my life. Also, I love the fact that music is something you can do when you're really old. So like, I like <laughs> I like to see myself as a, you know, an old lady just like in front of a laptop, you know, just Still like banging beats, out some yeah. hot beats. Yeah. <laughs> I love that because it would just be like, well, I've got the technology and I spent all of this money getting all the equipment. I'm going to do this forever. A hundred percent. Why not? And also just on the, on the side is mm. I think, it, you know, 
being a, an old person who makes kind of edgy music is much more badass than being a young person who makes edgy music. You know, like old punks are so yes. much more badass. Yep. And so I kind of want to go in that direction. Loose skin but with a needle through it. That's somewhere. it. You got it. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the compulsion to create because you mentioned that really early on in, in your answer of why music. Mm. Um, what takes it from being like, okay, this is a compulsion, something I have to be a part of, and then making a decision to be your career. They're two very different things. You can be involved in music forever, but it doesn't have to be your moneymaker. So let's talk a little bit about Yeah, that. 100%. And I mean, look, to be honest with you, it's still not my moneymaker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it'll ever be my moneymaker. Um, but it certainly is something that I've shaped my life around. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, there's a distinction to be made between sort of, for example, having musical ideas and then bringing them to fruition. So there's that sort of creative spark side of being a musician, you know, where, where it's, a, it's expressive and it's exciting. And then, as you say, there's, that, there's something else that happens next, which is a decision. It's, it's more of a conscious engagement mm. with, with what you're doing. And I think, you know, for me, initially, it, it took me a really long time, I should say, to make that conscious decision. You know, I'd always engage with music as a young person, I played guitar for a really long time. You know, in my teens, I was obsessed with, with you know, music magazines and collecting music. I had, yeah. I had really obscure kind of knowledge of, of genres and defined myself in that way, you know, as a, as a young person. Um, but, yeah, I think it took me a really long time to then sort of, you know, take that and turn it into, you know, a decision to pursue the thing. Um, and I think that was just because... I, I, again, I, I couldn't not do that. You know, I think it was, I have to pursue this to see where it, where it goes, you know. If you haven't um, tried it, then you haven't tried it. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, I mean, I, I'm of that age where like I grew up with the sort of the seventies kind of rock and roll dream. That's what my parents, yeah. you know, like they were listening to, to music from the seventies and eighties and, and I was really into that music and, and the sixties too and still am. And, you know, the whole kind of rock and roll, you know, narrative that happened in those eras is something that I grew up with, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, somewhat naively, I think most people of my generation who play music were pursuing that, you know, it's like, I mean, not that I ever thought I'd be a rock star, but more just like, what would that be like, you know, first of all, to, to be on a stage, then what would that be like to play at a festival, then what would it be like to get played on the radio, you know, mm. that that idea of the rock and roll dream um, which we now know is completely redundant and, yes. and, you know, record labels have no money and, and if you are, a, a, you know, a, a rock star in inverted commas, then all this other shit comes with it. Like you have to, you know, run a TikTok account. But like, going to yeah. say, nobody told you that you had to learn TikTok dances. I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> definitely not doing that. Um, but, um, but I think that's, you know, uh, in, in, in sort of naive pursuit of that, that rock and roll dream, you know, I, I kind of made that decision maybe to to actually you know pursue it further yeah okay that's really interesting because it's listening to something um as a child you're listening to music from the 60s 70s 80s I was listening to stuff from the 80s because that's what my mum was playing um so I was seeing yeah because like, you're like 20 years younger than me <laughs> <laughs> no no come on come on you're very young <laughs> It's an audio podcast, <laughs> no visuals. Um, I, was, I, I fell in love with things like Blondie and the Ramones, but at the same time some really, really old classical music. And my mum really loved to play those swoon CDs. I had a really mixed bag of like inspiration. So who were some of your inspirations growing up? 
Look, I mean, you know, the first band I was well and truly obsessed with was the Beatles. Um, and I was in high school when there was like a, a Beatles anthology that came out that was all like behind the scenes kind of footage of, yeah. about them and stuff like that. And it just coincided with this kind of obsession of mine. And I, I, I to this day, am, a, you know, a, a still a, an enormous Paul McCartney fan, I think, as a, as a songwriter, as, as just a creative person. He's just incredible. And the recent Get Back documentary that came out about them just totally confirmed that for me. Yeah. Like he is just a force, you know. And so I was really, really obsessed with the Beatles. Um, but then a little bit later on, and then of course went through all the music of the 60s, you know, mm -hmm. as, as you do and, and that kind of thing. But then when I really sort of started to refine music that I was into, um, I was probably around 18 and I discovered the sort of um, British folk rock kind of revival of the late 60s, early 70s. And that was when I went, oh, this is actually music that I can, like I can sing and I, ah, I could yeah. make, you know. So that was the time when, you know, I started to hear voices that sounded like mine. Mm. You know, in that oeuvre there's, you know, people like, you know, Judy Collins or June Tabor or... I don't know, just like I, I could sing those cadences, like yeah. that folky stuff. I was like, and, and I, you know, in that rock world, you know, as we all know in the 60s, like, you know, women were few and far between. Totally. You know, there was like the girl groups of the 60s and, you know, and then you had these people like sort of Patti Smith creeping through and stuff. But I, I don't sound like that, you know, and so there weren't any kind of people who I could look to straight so you away. Have to, you have to go over to like to disco and – um, yeah, Donna summers and things you have to go in a completely different that's direction right. to find those sounds. That's yeah. right, and that came later, you know, in in of those styles or whatever, and and that wasn't the music that my parents were listening to, so I sort of didn't have that, you know, as a reference point as a young person. Um, yeah, so then it was discovering that yeah, the folk rock revival that really kind of made me, you know, go ah, this is like it's extremely niche, um, mm. you know, really like I mean, there's a lot of cult, you know, yeah, following cult, for that yes. genre, but um. But it, it's not something that everyone's into. Um, but that sort of made me feel that I, I, you know, there was maybe somewhere I could, you know, put my voice and my kind of yeah. style. That's a really big um, point to how uh, how much representation matters too because if you're not hearing your voice, your sound, or even just well, honestly people who look like you doing something you want to do, it's really hard to go, I guess I can make, do this career, I guess I can emulate this pathway. 100%. It, it, I mean, it's a, it's a cliche but it, because it's it's just so – it's just true – you know, I think you really, you really need to actually see people kind of taking up space in a way that resonates with, with you. Otherwise, you know, you're not just trying to make the art, you're also trying to create the space and yeah. not everybody's cut out for that. And especially when you're young, you know, creating space when you're young is really hard. Like at my age now, you know, I'm 43 nearly next week. Um, I, I feel like I can create space for people. Like I feel pretty confident doing mm. that. Um, and I know how to hold space for other people yep. and stuff. But but as a young person, you know, you, you're just trying to navigate who you are, like actually trying to carve out some space for yourself or, you know, battle with other people and say, hey, I deserve to be here. That's really, that's really hard. Yeah. And you're still being told that there's only like three or four career paths in the world anyway. At that, yeah, that's at right. At that point, you were asked to pick a job four years earlier and you've got well, no that's clue what you want exactly. to do. Exactly. Well, you know, in Perth, you know, when I started playing music, it was still very much the case that, you know, there would only be one female on a lineup, if that, like mm. that was, you know, um, and for example, if you played like psychedelic music or whatever, and there was another woman who played psychedelic music and she got 
that slot, you knew you wouldn't get it. And what it what it mm. did was kind of build a bit of competitiveness in the industry where it'd be like, I don't I don't want so and so. Like I want to get it. And so there was there wasn't that sense of, you know, um, you know, togetherness um in you know, sort of with women in music or or yeah. I think it was it was still very kind of broken because that's how you know women were pitched against each other yes, for, for totally. opportunities and stuff like that, um, which is a real, yeah, it's it's horrible. Like it's so different now. It's I can't even explain how different it is now. Yeah, it's very much. Um, I always think of the the superhero movie trope, and like the Avengers are a really good one to use for this. So they've got one woman on the team, right, in the original Avengers, the Black Widow, and she has to be the best possible version of womanhood that there ever has been and she's got no flaws and she's feisty and sexy and can cut stuff and cook and blah, 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 and has to be able to do every single thing that a woman can do to earn her spot amongst uh, mediocre men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's – and it is exactly the same in music. And I think the other thing is, you know, women don't put themselves forward for opportunities unless, yeah, they feel like they're, you know, they, they really know what they're doing. So they tend to wait, 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 wait. Mm. And then by the time they jump into the industry or, you know, whatever, um, they're, they're that much further behind, you know. Yeah. So when when the guys would all be at the stage where they'd be sort of getting festival opportunities and they'd, they'd have their live shows really sort of consolidated, they'd be confident performers, you know, women would be coming in at the age of 30 yeah. tentatively and they've already missed out on all that breeding ground. So then, you know, they're at a deficit when it comes to, you know, festival bookings and taking the next step. So, yeah, look, it, it you know, um, I, I mean, I'm so glad to say that it looks different now. It's still not you know, it's still not perfect, still something that, you know, really needs work. But it's only a couple of weeks ago when I was on a lineup where I was the only. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still seeing it a, across Perth, you know, the, I don't know, as soon as, as, you know, mainly women stop kind of pushing, you know, for the diversity, people just start doing the all male thing again. Mm. And it's like, um, it, it's, you know, it's pretty tiring to keep, yeah, <laughs> keep pushing that barrow. <laughs> interesting point you made on the idea that if you're coming into the scene a little bit later, you're fighting to catch up on some space and catch up on, you know, the space that you're owed. You also can't make any mistakes at that point either no. because anything that would mark you and if you're a bit younger going into it and you're doing these gigs at like 17, 18 and you're like rocking out hard, you can make a mistake and it's not going to mark you forever. But if you start it later, this is your one chance and you're probably only going to give yourself to 33, 35 and then you won't let yourself do it anymore. 100%, 100%. I think like people are very forgiving of, of young people, you know, youth. You know, it's like people are still learning, they're, you know, whatever. Um, and um, and there's something really endearing also about sort of, you know, watching people learn and, you know, yeah. people, people love that. Um, but no, I never felt like I could get up and, and just have and just, just try. Like mm. no way did I have that sense. My, my sense was absolutely you got to have good songs, you got to have a good band, you got to be, you know, um, yeah, I, I put an enormous amount of pressure on myself. But also, yeah, that pressure was external. It was coming from somewhere. Yes, um, totally. For sure. And but having said that, I didn't come to it as a young person. So I my journey to actually being a musician um, it was quite characteristic of a lot of, you know, women, particularly I think sort of my age and older, um, was the most roundabout thing. And, and I, I, I see it, I still watch other women do this actually, where what you want to be as a musician, yeah. you, you want to be writing songs, you want to be on stage, you want to be recording albums, right? But you do all this other stuff in the music industry first by way of kind of just getting in there and feeling confident and meeting people. So I actually, um, so I was, I was a school teacher um, for some years and then I opened my own business called Rock Scholars where I was like mentoring young bands, putting them in 
you know, like on you know on stage doing gigs, that kind of stuff. And in a roundabout way through Rock Scholars, I actually met a whole bunch of people. I kind of formed my own community and I developed the confidence to also be a musician. So like I was teaching the kids, but the kids were teaching me, yeah. you know, that, that kind of thing. And all my staff was supporting me. Um, I literally started a business just so <laughs> that I could be a musician, like in hindsight, yes, you know, like yeah. that, what I was drawn to was playing music with people and creating a community of my own. That That's why I did it, you know, and but how ludicrous is that when really I, all I wanted to do was just, you know, it's be in a band. It's a perfect example of what you were saying a second ago, though. It's a perfect example of being like, I have to create my own path because a pathway isn't available. Yeah, that's to right. It doesn't exist for me. Initially, I was a year seven teacher, so I'm primary trained. Yeah. Um, so I went to Kalgoorlie and taught year seven for a few years and came back here. And um, And long story short, as a result of teaching, I then opened Rock Scholars, um, which um, ended up basically getting so big and being so successful that I gave up teaching for however many years, um, ran Rock Scholars just as like a full-time gig. Um, and then, yeah, I sold Rock Scholars about, I want to say five years ago, something like that. And I, be I believe you. <laughs> something, yeah, something like that. And um, yeah, kind of went from there. That's really great. <laughs> okay. So in the program of Rock Scholars, um, are you dabbling on the side then or are you just like I am fully mentoring these people on how to get on stages and then where did you find all of the information to be able to put them in these spaces in the first place? I'm a teacher. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, you know, okay. when, you, when you're a teacher, you, you, you just have to know more than the kids. And, and I think one of my strengths is A, making people around me feel kind of empowered and, and inspired and B, bringing people together like with a common kind of vision or shared values or something. I think that's, that's something I, I find I can do quite well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 like I knew how to play instruments, you mm, know, so course, I already, yeah. I already knew how to play like guitar and bass and drums and keys and you know, I've I'd, just casually I'd seven dabbled, instruments. Yeah. <laughs> I dabbled. Oh, like, I'm not saying I'm good at them all, but I can <laughs> play them all. Um, I dabbled, um, uh, in lots of things. And then obviously, you know, I had, I had staff who kind of helped, but yeah, through that I met, yeah, some, a, some, some young folks and B, some parents who then I kind of formed a band with. And then, so we had this sort of like, it looked a bit like a family band. It was great. <laughs> some like older people, younger people. Um, yeah. And that was, that was really my first proper band, which was called the Lammas Tide. It was like a psych folk, kind of psych folk nice. rock band. Um, so from that band, were you guys just playing locally or were you just like at the stage of creating music? Like what was your experience with them? So I, um, I, I tend to, every band I've ever been in, I've written all the songs um, and sort of led the band. Mm. Um, and so I, I wrote all the songs, but in the, the Tide, everybody wrote their own parts. So the way that band worked is that I would sort of go in with, with essentially piano parts and, and vocal. Um, and then we had drums, bass, um, guitar and uh, fiddle. And that, um, yeah, and, and so everyone would kind of write their own parts and, yeah, we basically just kind of refined a set and then just started gigging and then, you know, just kind of recording and, you know, doing the doing the whole thing. So um, we put out 
uh, a full-length album in 2013 and that was pretty much when the band kind of folded, which is actually quite common. So like a, a debut album, we'd put out EPs before that, but when you put out a debut album, you know, it's a big body of work and yeah. um, I think – you know, you've reached a point there. Quite often you see bands sort of fold after they put out a debut release. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that unfortunately if it doesn't immediately take off from there, you sort of look at each other and go, well, we sunk 10 grand into this and um, we're all very tired. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> um, okay, so that definitely speaks to like the compulsion you were talking about at the start where it's like I am this thing that needed to be fed. Um, and being that you talk about like, your parents' love of music and that, does that mean that your family is incredibly musical as well or not really? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would say yes to that. Um, my parents, I'm the one thing I'm the most grateful to them for is that they're both just absolute music lovers, like really, truly. And their taste is very broad, very eclectic. So my mum responds sort of on a physical kind of emotional level Mm -hmm. to music. She loves to dance. Um, you know, I remember her, she was obsessed with you too, you know, in the eighties, I remember her like just lying on the floor. She, I mean, she's, she's now kind of deaf, which is, you know, but she used to like have the speakers either side of her head, you know, and just really like feeling this stuff. And my dad, you know, his, his approach was more gentle, but more sort of cerebral. So he would research and he knew everything about all the Ah. bands. He would pour over like books and liner notes and, you know, he had this immense kind of musical knowledge. Not to say my mum doesn't either, but my dad particularly loves that you know the history of music and bands and like he can tell you oh so-and-so played on that um so so we had a big record collection but more importantly I think it was more like music was at the center of our home it Mm. wasn't an incidental it what we didn't have like the radio on and no one paid attention it was like we we put on a tape and everybody listened to everybody danced or dad came home from work went into the lounge um and instead of watching tv he put on a record and he just sat there he didn't do anything else, you know. So I had this modeling of like music has value, you know, just, it, it, you know, in its own right. It, it's, it, you know what I mean? Like, yes, completely. Yeah. 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 Um, again, feeding the compulsion seems to be like an, an entire family one, but also something that's really special that you got to just talk about was that everybody would sit around and just listen to music and experience one media at a time, which I think is very rare. What is it these days? Yeah. yeah. Like I mean, like we're all on our phone, too, you know, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I often talk about like the need to create content on content on content. So like, if you know, you can't just be like, and I'm creating this one song. I also have to get a behind the scenes of me creating said song and a behind the scenes of the behind the scenes of creating that yeah, one that's song. Right, that's right. So we're all in our own little uh, time warp, really. (laughs) Yeah, that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I think that's a really good place to take our first little quick break. And then when we come back, I would love to talk to you about your current uh, experiments in music and all of the amazing stuff you've done with web rumors and things like that. But more importantly, what you want to see in the music scene moving forward. Great. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, and we are back. I'm still joined by M. Burrows, and I think I mentioned before the break that I wanted to talk about your current explorations in music. Now that we've done the backstory and we've dived into your wonderful family and their attention to music and their creativity, which is fantastic. So tell me a bit about what you create now and how it was influenced by um, your love of music. So now I make music that could loosely be described as uh, new wave electronic. Um, I've been sort of lately pushing a bit into the sort of, uh, I guess, post-disco kind of proto-house sort of scene. It, it's all got a bit of a sort of late 70s, early 80s kind of sound to it. Um, yeah, it's it's been really exciting. The, the reason I, I kind of moved into that space, I think, is because I embarked on the journey of of production, you know, learning how to produce my own music. And the reason for that is probably because, you know, having played in bands like the Lammas Tide where other people always recorded or like wrote the parts and then mm. recorded the songs and then you'd employ a mix engineer and you don't do all this stuff. I just always felt that the final product was not exactly how it sounded in my head. No matter how well I tried to convey the sound or the, the vibe, I was like, something's going wrong. And it's, it's not that it, doesn't, it sounds bad. It's just not, it doesn't sound exactly how I want it to yeah. sound. And so I thought, well, there's really only one way to get it to sound exactly how you want <laughs> it. And that's to do the entire thing yourself. Yeah. Um, so I went back to, to study audio at SAE um, as a mature age student and, um, and loved that. Like that was just really, I mean, it was you know, it was a bit of a dream come true in a lot of ways for me because I, I always wanted to be like a studio engineer and um, and being able to sit in, you know, studios with giant consoles kind of and they, for learning purposes, the college has like, will get all the stems of famous songs and you remix them. So it'd be like, wow. oh, here's, um, you know, Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye or Heard It Through the Grapevine or something and I'd just be sitting in the class going, oh my God, this is amazing. And all the kids are like, whatever. whatever. <laughs> Like, all right then. Um, uh, and if you've heard, um, well, you, if you have heard, if you've gotten to this far in the podcast, you've definitely heard uh, music that was mixed and mastered at SAE because our introductory song to this podcast is Corrosive. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed doing that with you. And I mean, it's it's all a learning process. Like you listen, I listen back to it. I go, oh, I could have, you know, probably done better oh, totally. now. But, you know, um, I think, yeah, the, the production journey's been really great for me because the one thing I've noticed actually that's improved the most about my music making since I learned learned how to mix and I'm still you know on that journey but is actually my arranging skills because I think once you understand the mix process which is obviously to do more with things like you know the space and that the frequency spectrum you know that instruments are taking up you can arrange the songs accordingly so rather than going this is a cool part I'll try and squeeze it into the mix mm. now I go the part just doesn't work. Like write a part that sits in that frequency band, write a part that's going to hold that kind of space in the track. And so the, the, my arrangements have definitely improved, which is, which is really cool and continue to, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm really blessed. I've got a really cool home studio space. Um, my partner's also a producer, sound engineer, sound designer, oh, like yeah. amazing. So, and way, way more accomplished than me. So that's really handy as well. I can always just kind of turn around and go, can you help me with this? <laughs> or like, I'm just working on something and I hear him yell, that snare sounds a bit pinched, you know, like from the <laughs> other room. I'm like, Hey, I never asked me. I didn't want you to tell me this. 
Maybe I want it pinchy. <laughs> that's right. It's also good because although, um, yes, you want to create the thing that's sitting in your head, sometimes it is good to have that external set of ears that hasn't heard it 7,000 times before. Definitely. And it's just hearing it for the first time and can actually see or hear what you haven't picked up on. Well, look, mixing uh, mixing is a real trip and it's like it, – because – you can, oh, it's, yeah, it's really hard to sort of maintain an objective standpoint, particularly when it's your music, you know. Um, I would always be kind of saying to engineers, you know, even just, you know, mix engineers who are mixing my stuff, you know, ah, the voc- I want the vocal more processed, you know, I want it like that, I want it like that. You know, like you're always biased listening to your own music, but mm-hmm. as soon as you learn to mix, you start to hear the piece you know, the synthesis of everything. So instead of going, I hear my voice, I hear this, I hear that, you actually hear the whole thing. And that was like an absolute trip for me. The first time that I I, I developed those ears, they're, they're not the musician ears. They're mm. actually, a, it's a different set of ears. And as soon as I developed that, I was like, oh, this is gnarly. Like, because I'd, I'd have a part or something and go, I love this part. I want this to be loud because I love that part. Yes. But yeah. as soon as I developed those ears, I was like, that part doesn't need to be loud. Like it's not, it's still going to be there and it's still going to, it just, you know, because I could hear that whole thing. So yeah, it's been, it's been cool. I just, um, I'm slightly obsessed though. So I like, I get up in the morning, I was like, start mixing it like, you know, 7am. I got it. (laughs) (laughs) Got to, yeah, back, back off a bit. (laughs) Do you think that that kind of takes a little bit of the emotion out of it though? Like I mean, maybe in a good way, because I know that when I listen back, all I'm hearing is like, oh, it's just, it's me and I'm just cringing because that's, oh, it's my voice. And it's like, okay, well, could you listen to the whole song for a second and yeah. not, not just scrutinise every time you reckon you did a tiny tongue click somewhere? Um, do you think that removing almost that like Im- immediate emotional reaction has been an overall positive for you? Yeah, I mean, yes. In, in so, uh, Again, it's, it's developing the objectivity is, is really important. But mm. at the end of the day, you, you still want people to feel something when they listen to the sound. So you, you, you listen to the song, so you can't get rid of that, that, sort of connection with it all together mm. you know some of the mixing processes are really clinical and so you know they can just be smashed out like you're doing a task you know like you're going through and you're going you know get rid of this frequency you you know pulling things back you you know whatever and that that can be really quite almost sort of scientific or mathematical yeah. you, you know you yeah it's more of just a process but then ultimately you're going to sit back and you're going to listen to the whole thing and it's going to make you feel something so you don't get rid of it entirely I think that's why it's um a why it's so addictive and b why it can be really exhausting like mixing can be really really hard I think yeah uh, I'm sure. yeah, yeah. I, I, I think production's really fun and mixing is challenging for me yeah I try not to go back to be honest mm. um because I really believe that you know when you make music and release it you're capturing a moment in time mm. you know and and at that time, it's the best you can do. I know people who scrutinise and keep going, you know, with music and they never release anything, Yeah. you know. And for me, putting out music is critical to moving on. I've mm. got to get it out so that I can then get to the next, you know, the next thing. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely a point where I go, I've laboured enough. You know, this, this is not going to get better at this moment if I just keep going. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, Completely. sure, if I got another person in or whatever, maybe it would change. But, like, at the end of the day, I want to move on. You know, I want to make different stuff. So yeah. I think you've just you've just got to call it. Um, it's like anything in life. You, you can't regret it. You just have to go, it's the best I could do at the time. And as we were talking about before with the allowance of letting people make mistakes and, like, giving them that space – um, it's the same with recorded work. Or oh, yes, it's a, it's more permanent and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that can be a little bit scary, but you still have a, to allow yourself to be like, 
It didn't have to be my magnum opus. That's kind of the joy of making music is that nothing has to be my quote-unquote magnum opus. Well, I, I can keep creating. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we need to get rid of this idea that there's such thing as a magnum opus, mm. you know, because, you know, ultimately a, a musician is a person, you know, and they're on a, on a journey that's, that's hopefully lifelong, you know. And if you sort of compare music making with the growth of a person, I don't think, se- you know, you can separate them at all. Mm. Um, there's no point at which you are you know, a, a, a complete and finished person. Yes. You know, you, you're not, you know, one, one isn't. So, you know, and I think it's the same with music to, to imply that there's a, a, you know, a piece of work that is like the ultimate something, you know, I mean, we all keep trying to make the best work we can, but the, you know, again, it's, it's a representation of a time, you know, I think that's sort of the idea of the Magnum Opus. Again, it kind of comes back to that, you know, sort of 60s, 70s, you know, kind of rock and roll idea. But also I think that, you know, um, post kind of renaissance idea of like musicians being you know or like like having a genius or something like that mm. where you can just sort of create this this thing that comes out of nowhere yeah, this the kind prodigy, of, yeah 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 and i mean yeah i i don't know i i don't really agree with all the kind of that that stuff to be honest i mean yeah i i'm not airy fairy about about music making i mean you have these moments which which feel like magic and they're awesome but you know, they're, they're, they're just made by a human who's having a, you know, who's a culmination of their musical life and their, just their life in general, you know. Um, and sometimes, yeah, it's, it's magic, something works. But honestly, I mean, you know, it's, it, I don't know, maybe it sounds not very uh, emotional or, or spiritual <laughs> to say this, but it's, you know, it probably can be broken down to things like, you know, an, an equal distribution of, of frequency spectrum. And, probably, you know, yeah, like you, totally. you actually probably can yeah. go, there's nothing, you know, I mean, I know we all like to go, you know, music, music we don't understand it. It's amazing. And and, it's, and there is that, you know, I'm not saying there's none of that, but like I think ultimately you can't make music and be thinking like that. It, you, you just have to go, I just, I, I make it and it, if it elicits something, that's great. But um, yeah. Does that sound really cynical? No, I, not I, at I all. I think, <laughs> no, I actually think it's perfect because, I mean, in – in, and I, I sound like such a fuddy-duddy and I say this all the time, but in the world of social media, we always have to predict what somebody's reaction is going to be to the art or to the product that we're creating in that moment mm. when it would be so much nicer for everybody involved if we just created for that particular moment rather than wondering what somebody was going to think about it next week, next month, next yep. year. Honestly, somebody can decide what my magnum opus is when I'm dead. That's right. And that would be great if I'm ever so lucky for people to bother to <laughs> to research me that well, much. Well, that's right. And, and, like, and who gets to make that call? You know, mm. who, who gets to say this? is this person's seminal work you know I mean it used to be like these kind of old white male you know music critics who'd be like I I declare this album this person's finest work they develop you know they they develop that's right we learned about it a lot throughout university it would be like there are all of these composers and they're all amazing but here are these four and we've decided I don't know who we is, but we've decided That's that they right. are the ones and you will learn everything they've ever done. And yes, I'm talking about Mozart and yes, I'm talking yeah, about white Beethoven. Dudes. Yeah, white dudes, yeah, 100%. Like, all this stuff that <laughs> that people keep reproducing and reproducing and reproducing just to prove to themselves that it was any good in the first place. Yeah, that's right. No, and I'm sorry, but the magic flute's incredibly boring and rather stupid. <laughs> oh, look, and, and I mean, there's ex- you know, the same thing as you know exists in like, you know, rock music and, and music, pop music, yeah. you know, it's like the, the canon's just... Um, you know, it's it's actually just, you know, a problem um, <laughs> yes. and, and, and really just kind of needs to be, you know, remedied. And, and it has been a bit over the years, you know, music magazines are now trying to sort of redress that balance and you see them, you know, putting Rosetta Tharp in things and you're kind of going, uh, you know, add some um, some 
amazing black women yes, <laughs> who were making this like awesome music. Yeah, yeah who, who, like, who invented the entire genre, but we just decided to forget about that's that because right. it was convenient. Yeah. Well, you know, even like, you know, the Questlove documentary, Summer of Soul, I haven't, actually haven't seen it, but I know the story of it. Um, but that whole idea that there was a essentially a black Woodstock that took place that nobody even knew about, mm. you know, um, I just think, I mean, you know, do we need more evidence than that? Like, you know, there were and, and had the most incredible lineup of musicians and was just not even, you know, a thing yeah. that, yeah, in the, in the, you know, yeah, broad kind of media or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, so I definitely don't think that what what you were saying about like having it all go down to a line of frequencies, I think that that's really, really true because <laughs> because when you're trying to create something, it would be like asking a bot to like, well, I'm sure they have done it somewhere, like ask a bot to create the next best pop song and you'll get like a very disjointed yeah. range of crap. Yeah. And But it probably would be what would be considered best by today's um, algorithm. Yeah. But next week it'll be different. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, yeah, that, that there's something special about music, and insofar as it, you know, it, it can you know move you, and and you have an emotional response to it, and stuff like that. But you also have emotional responses to like food, and mm. food moves you, and no one goes like, wow, food is so spiritual, you know. It's like <laughs> <laughs> the person who made that, you know, some kind of genius. It's like we yeah. did, we did start doing that with the ear of celebrity chefs. Actually, that's <laughs> a that's bit. a fair point. We yeah, did. yeah. And again, it all started being being white men for a really long time. Yeah, that's right, Jamie Oliver. Yeah, we've done yeah. it. <laughs> We keep doing it. Everything. We keep ruining everything by trying to insist that there must be a hierarchy of who's the best at that thing. Oh, gosh, yeah. That actually might be almost like your exact point there, though, is like us deciding that there must be a best in any given category or genre of music or art in general is kind of the enemy of the entire point of creating the art in the first place. From the point of view of a musician, it's just it can be so damaging and limiting and dangerous and, and, you know, I think, you know, creative people – uh, can be psychologically, you know, um, delicate. You know, when when you're someone who's hypersensitive or very observant, you know, you you're constantly observing, you're synthesizing what you see, hear, taste, smell, you know, all that stuff, and you then turn it into something, like you make something out of that. You know, that that process is not something that just happens when you sit down at your computer or your piano and write a song. Mm. That is that is a way of being. It's a way of seeing the world, experiencing the world. You know, it informs all of your relationships. You know, being a creative person is, is you know, all-encompassing. Um, so I think saying then to people, you know, I don't know, putting any parameters around creativity or any judgments on it is really damaging for for creative people um, psychologically. And I think it's why we see so much anxiety and depression and, mm. you know, all this kind of stuff in creative communities. Um, and is that something that like when it comes to the scene, especially the local scene now that you would like to highlight as far as like taking um, our mental health into consideration or like what sort of things would you like to see moving forward in the Perth scene particularly? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, mental health is has always been, you know, kind of a, a thing that's, you know, I guess, on the agenda uh, in in a, in a music community, um, and it and it's exacerbated, or you know, poor mental health is kind of exacerbated by a lifestyle that's been, you know, perpetuated over the years. Uh, you know, you play a late gig, you need stimulants, you celebrate, you mm. blah blah blah, and all of that involves, you know, drugs and alcohol and and all that stuff, and that doesn't help. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, traditionally there's been a, a real lack of kind of support for creative people in, in you know, around the highs and lows of being a, a creative or, or, you know, a musician in, in my case. I think um, 
there's certainly a lot more conversation around mental health now. And I feel like, you know, you're seeing a lot more people, for example, yeah, give, give up drugs and alcohol and be very vocal about that. Like in, in the Perth music scene, I yeah. know a lot of people who have, you know, who are now sober and who are very vocal about that um, and how much it's, it's changed things for them. So, you know, I think taking drugs and alcohol out of the equation is, is pivotal. I think yes. that's really, yeah. really important. And so, you know, yeah, bars need to offer non-alcoholic alternatives. You know, they, they need to, yeah, take some responsibility there too. Um, and even things like, you know, bands still get get a rider when they do a gig, they get, they get paid in, yeah, in, alcohol. in alcohol, you know, and it's like, make it a meal, make it some chips, you yeah. know, just get, get whatever, but, but just take that out of the equation as like, cause if a band starts playing gigs, you know, at the age of 18, and they get paid in beer, then the, there's the precedent. The yep. precedent is set straight away. It's like, okay, I play a gig, you know, I get this minimal teeny tiny fee on the door. Let's talk about that later. Oh, and then, yeah. <laughs> you know, I get beer you know, and I have a great time because I drink all this beer. So it seems like it's worthwhile, you know, or something, you know, it's like, no, no, no. We live in a capitalist economy. Mm. Like you deserve money yes. for what you're doing. You know, like, let, let's take the beer out of the equation, improve people's mental health and actually pay them, you know, so that they can, yeah, live their lives properly and, and support themselves and, you know, also remove that kind of stress from. You yeah. Know. And immediately giving um, somebody's art worth and value Unfortunately, yes, because of capitalism. Unfortunately, yes, that probably has to be attached to a dollar sign yeah. um, because you can't attach that to alcohol because then their worth is based in liquor or their worth is based in the the drugs or their worth is based in something other than something they could actually use to continue making music with. That's right. People love to pretend that capitalism doesn't exist when it suits them. Yes. You know, so so like, no, no, but we, you know, we, we, we're rewarding your art and your this in different ways and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, no. In this economy, the only way to reward is financially, like, mm. you know, t for, for parity, for, for equality, you know, everyone needs to have access, you know, to, to, to money, you know, whether we like it or not. Um, and it's a real, it's a real problem for musicians, I think, that, um, you know, trying to live a creative life, you know, with, with no money is another, yeah, psychological stress, you know. Completely, yeah, which only perpetuates the spiral from before because it's the only place you're going to get honestly, your pub feed and your couple of bottles is when you go and do this show, then it, it just, you're just going to continue to do and act in that way to, to keep surviving. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, musicians have been at the bottom of the food chain in the music industry for a really long time. Venues will always look after themselves. You know, bookers will look after themselves. Mm. Promoters will, record labels will look after themselves. And the people who always come last are the musicians. And yet they are the foundation of the industry. So the Musicians Union has actually been advocating. So it, this has been passed over East by a number of musicians unions, but the, the, the WA Musicians Union has been advocating for a minimum payment for gigs for musicians, gigs that are funded by the government, mm. right? A minimum payment of $250 per musician per gig, right? Per 45 minutes that I, yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah, that's right. People have been saying, that's impossible. Venues are going to go under. This is going to happen. This, and it's like, hang on. If venues are going to go under, what that means is that venues actually can't afford to be employing these musicians. They yeah. are operating beyond their means. And who's suffering here? The musician. Yeah. You know, it's like let's let's value the musicians and then venues can work out what they can afford to do. Yeah. But why are we protecting the venues at the expense of the musicians, you know? And I feel really sort of passionately, in case you can't tell, I've <laughs> 
No, I love it. Yes. I feel really passionately about that because I think there's been a precedent set in the Perth music industry which is based on it, it's to do with the number of bands that plays, right? So so it's all a numbers game. So a booker will put five bands on a lineup and they'll charge $10 on the door, sometimes even five. Yes. And the way it works for the venue and the booker is that if those five bands each bring 10 people, that's 50 people drinking on the bar, right? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. But how, so the bar will still, you know, have money. It, it's a numbers game. The more bands there are, the more people are there. However, for the bands, if there's five bands on the do, on the and they're only charging ten dollars on the door, and they're they're bringing ten people each, I mean, they're lucky to make you know forty bucks each or something. Uh, forty bucks a band, yeah, a band. You know, yeah. and it's like something is wrong here. Like, yeah, and they all bumped in at two o'clock, so they've been there for six hours before yep. the show even bloody started. Well, that's the other thing. At least one band is playing after midnight, mm-hmm. and nobody's there. Yeah, you know, and so that that's a dangerous precedent that's happened in Perth. You know, over the last sort of fifteen years, where yeah, they've just just so many bands playing on a, in a night and earning nothing that bands then don't expect to get paid and, yeah. It's incredibly unfortunate and it's even a conversation that I continue to have with my own band yeah. <laughs> as a revolving door because I am somebody who is privileged and fortunate enough to have made music my entire career. Yeah. But the more and more time that I spend in the band scene particularly, the more I'm like, oh, I see why this isn't viable for so many people because yeah. as a soloist, no one questions me when I tell them what my fee is. No, that's right. No one questions it. Yeah. But as a band, people look at the ticket price and if it's above 15 bucks, they go, oh, I don't, Why? So, oh, because we're actually going to pay the bands properly. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's there's yeah, it's part of the yeah, the sort of the culture in Perth, unfortunately. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. but there are incredible people like yourself who are working really, really hard to change that. Well, look, I mean, you know, the, the, there's people like at the musicians' union, I think, who are really, <laughs> really working hard to change definitely, that. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, and and that I think is a really good place to leave it for today. Is that um, value the art that you consume? Um. Which, what better place to leave it than that? Yeah. Um, so let everybody know where they can find you and your incredible work on the interwebs after yeah. we dished on the internet for <laughs> <an hour. laughs> um, Yeah, I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram at WebRumors, W-E-B-R-U-M-O-R-S. Uh, but I like to encourage people to go to my Bandcamp page um, because I sort of – Bandcamp is something you can run independently as an artist um, – and that's probably where I sell my most most of my kind of records and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's just, yeah, if you just search Web Rumours on Bandcamp. Great. And we'll make sure that all of that is available in the show notes for everybody. So just click on those links and consume the incredible content M has for us. Thanks, um, Sarah. Thank you so much for being a part of WA Expose. Thank you. WA Expose is an independent production. Our artwork was created by Georgia Sassenfeld and our theme music is Corrosive by Aria Scarlett and M Burrows. You can find out more about the podcast or live shows at ariascarlet.com forward slash WA expose. Insert date. Yeah, I I actually can't. Doesn't matter. I actually can't think. Yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.